Document donated by Alfred Corduan. The entail of the covenant or the Savior's little ones by Sir Robert Anderson, KCB, LL.D. It is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Matthew 18:14. Preface to the Electronic Version. Alfred Corduan, 2003. The Entail of the Covenant was published by Sir Robert Anderson sometime during the First World War. A library copy that I found listed on the internet was published in 1914, a scant four years before his death. The source for this out-of-print document, which does not give the original date, is found in Volume 10 of the Assembly Writers' Library published March 1984 by Gospel Tract Publications, 7 Beach Avenue, Glasgow G415BY. The original document has lost its copyright, the publisher of the reprint was happy to see me convert the text to electronic form and make it freely available. My request to any seeking to make further use of this document is to give credit to Gospel Tract Publications for the reprint and include their address. The author Sir Robert Anderson, 1841-1918, is a singular individual in many respects. He is highly esteemed by believers for his many excellent works, all characterized by clear, penetrating logic. Several of his books are still in print, regarded as definitive and unsurpassed in their spheres, which is a testimony to the greatness of this man. Perhaps his most well-known work is The Coming Prince, which is considered by many to provide one of the best treatments available of Daniel's prophecy of the Seventy Weeks. Daniel in the Critics' Den addresses the ways those that pseudo-intellectuals have sought to discredit the book of Daniel. Also well-known is The Gospel and Its Ministry, regarded by many as the definitive treatment of the Gospel and the fundamental doctrines associated with it. Volume 10 of the Assembly Writers' Library contains two other works, Human Destiny, which deals with various wider hope-slash-universal salvation doctrines, and which C.H. Spurgeon describes as the most valuable contribution on the subject I have seen, and misunderstood texts of the New Testament, addressing many scriptures that have caused confusion and controversy among believers. He was well known in public life in his day as an outstanding lawyer and government servant. As a secret agent for the British government he was very effective in gathering intelligence on the Irish Fenian movement, a precursor to the modern IRA. When this role was discovered the British government relocated him to London and gave him an honoured appointment in Scotland Yard as Assistant Commissioner of Metropolitan Police and Chief of the Criminal Investigation Department. In this position he played a key role in the Jack the Ripper investigation, 1888, and his works and conclusions on the subject are integral to any consideration of the matter. Interestingly enough, this is the time when the popular Sherlock Holmes mysteries were being written Sir Robert and his staff were the true Sherlocks. The records show that crime decreased in London during that period. He directed this work till 1901, when he was knighted upon retiring. The Topic The entail of the covenant deals with the salvation of children and, because the Calvinistic doctrine of election plays largely on this, specifically challenges the scriptural basic of this teaching. The subtitle of the book, The Savior's Little Ones, is taken from Matthew 18 verse 14. It is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The verse expresses much of the burden of the book, God loves the children and would save them, every one, yet we confuse and hinder them because of carelessness and unscriptural doctrines. 
We take truths meant for adults and apply them to children with terrible results. He specifically addresses the need to have a known time when, place where, and manner how of conversion, establishing that conversion, per se, is only for adults, and that young children who trust Christ may well not remember the specific event. Doubting the Little Ones My concerns in this area have grown over the years as I have compared our practice with Scripture. We do not expect the little ones to get saved, if they take steps toward the Savior we are afraid to encourage or believe them because, as I have heard over and over, you have to be careful with children. Yet the clear words of the Savior stand in stark opposition to this, for he said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. If this is true we must expect that children easily come into the blessing of genuine salvation. It is the adults who need extra scrutiny and with whom we must be careful. Adults can pressure a little child into saying or doing most anything. If we are too anxious to bolster our own reputation as parents and soul winners that we are unwilling to discern the heart of the child and work with the Holy Spirit as he leads them to the Savior, we are guilty of spiritual malpractice. Yet parents who fear the Lord and love and know their little ones are well aware of this danger and are given the grace and insight by God to avoid it. The greater danger is that we, in our fear of false professions, one commit the opposite evil and demand details of understanding and steps of repentance and conversion that the Lord in His Word never demanded, at least not of children. In this we are delving into concerns that are not ours. It is never our job to inspect the root but clearly, always, consistently to inspect the fruit, by their fruit ye shall know them, Matthew 7 verse 20. We are to receive one such little one in His name, seek to nurture and nourish. With those who would endlessly doubt the faith of little ones for their lack of terminology and experience the Savior would be much displeased. He would sternly say, Let the little children come unto me and forbid them not. Don't trouble, doubt them, let them come. Of Millstones and Stumbling Blocks I have known of a number of obedient children that have sought over many years to be saved, to no seeming avail. A father said of his respectful, obedient teenage son, he would love to be saved. I wanted to cry, this cannot be. The Lord who loves such so much that he sent his son to die for them, that longs for their salvation more than all our emotions combined, cannot make salvation so difficult that those that would come cannot. Even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. This, coupled with many other solemn words, warns us that the Lord holds us personally accountable if we stumble a little one through our carelessness. Even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. This, coupled with many other solemn words, warns us that the Lord holds us personally accountable if we stumble a little one through our carelessness. Perhaps we have not been as clear and, perhaps, urgent with our children when it comes to this, the greatest of matters. We have no problem commanding our children on far lesser matters with no room for negotiation. We do not say, I hope you will choose to not play in the street or I am praying that you will not drink this poison. We do not even say, if you choose to tell the truth, or, I hope that you will obey me. We say, do not play in the street, do not drink this poison, you will not lie, you must obey. Yet, somehow, we have come to believe that the best approach with children regarding their soul's salvation is a distant praying, hoping, suggesting. Are God's commandments to us options or expected requirements? The answer is absolutely clear, the Lord never gives us the option to not obey His commandments. I remember reading that the use of shalt by the Lord in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere is a unique use of language syntax, He is God and He fully expects that we shall do it.
Interesting it is that the characteristic that God focuses on when explaining his pleasure with Abraham, the father of faith and of the faithful, is this, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, Genesis 18 verse 19, these are the kinds of fathers and mothers that God is looking for today. Now we know that, unlike the other dangers mentioned previously, salvation involves the depths of the heart rather than an outward act. We also know that genuine salvation is an act of God, begun, carried out, and culminated by Him. Yet, I ask, is faith in Christ an option or a commandment to our child? Scripture makes it clear, it is a commandment, it is a matter of simple obedience. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son Jesus Christ, 1 John 3 verse 23, But God be thanked, that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Romans 6 verse 17, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Romans 10 verse 16, the two, faith and obedience, go hand in hand, one cannot be separated from the other. Are we commanding our children to trust Christ with the same urgency that we command them to obey any other of God's commands? The degree of our focus, our urgency in this matter to our children is directly proportional to our perception of the danger that they are in, as well as our own sense of personal accountability in the matter and accountable we are. There is no other way to explain the clear requirement of an elder, Titus 1 verse 6, that he have faithful children, which is more correctly translated, children of faith, saved children. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Note that this does not say, when he is old, he will return to it. God lays the responsibility to see that our children are saved squarely on our poor, weak, trembling shoulders, and with this gives us the great hope that he will enable us to do what he has commanded and will save every one of our little ones as we look to him. Do we have the faith to believe him? Election equals Eli's excuse. No believing parent would deliberately push his child away from salvation. No, this happens by default, a result of accepting doctrines and practices by tradition from our fathers which we, unlike the Bereans, have never searched out for ourselves. Chief at the root of this is the Calvinistic, properly Augustinian, doctrine known as election. A parent who accepts this position believes that, no matter how hard he may pray for his child, no matter how diligently he instructs and nurtures, or, conversely, how awfully he neglects and abuses, his son or daughter has already been predestined to heaven or hell. Thus parents are wholly absolved of all responsibility regarding the eternal destiny of their little ones. We talk around this obvious conclusion because it is so condemning, but it cannot be avoided. Perhaps, when confronted with the destruction of their offspring, some election-believing parents would say with Eli, It is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. 1 Samuel 3 verse 18 However these are not words of godly submission but rather an inexcusable expression of the careless, lazy indifference that marked this failing leader of God's people, and which got him and his sons into this trouble in the first place. God clearly laid the matter solidly at his feet. He never loved his sons enough to demand that they trust and follow the Lord with all their hearts, to restrain and discipline when they didn't, and to cry out to the Lord for undeserved mercy for them when destruction was near. He was content to accept the decree concerning his sons as predetermined by an almighty God, thus absolving him of all responsibility. Consider how genuine men of God and I reverently include the Savior responded when facing the election or choice of a God who has stated that he will not repent, Numbers 23 19. 
David could cry out to the Lord day and night over his child which the Lord had clearly stated would die, 2 Samuel 12 verse 22, through which, although he had to surrender the child for a time, he gained a Solomon. Moses could cry out for, and secure, the Lord's repentance and the deliverance of the people after the Lord had commanded him to let me alone to destroy them, Exodus 32 verse 10, and if anyone understood predestination, Moses did, Romans 9 verse 17. Paul could cry out with unparalleled earnestness for the salvation of all Jews, even to the point of death. Romans 9 verses 1 to 4, Romans 10 verse 1, if anyone understood election, Paul did. The Savior could cry out with the most intense agony to his heavenly Father for deliverance from the cross even while he knew that there was no other way, simply because all things are possible unto thee, Mark 14 verse 36, and, the scriptures make it clear, he was delivered, Hebrews 5 verse 7. These are the expressions from the intense depths of the most godly of hearts, how can we believe any less for our little ones, theology, or no theology? Even the great Charles Spurgeon, a staunch Calvinist, loved souls so much that he is known to have prayed publicly, Lord, save the elect, and then elect some more. This is the heart of love that, although in contradistinction to his received theology, was so in tune with the heart and mind of the Lord that he did not allow these doctrines to color his actions and faith where it really mattered. No parent is perfect, and the best of parents can have an erring child. The Lord says, All souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, Ezekiel 18 verse 4. We understand that every parent and every child stands on his own feet of responsibility before the Lord. Yet the blind bowing to such doctrines as are widely held amongst us, and the corresponding slackness of purpose, cannot be justified by any believer who genuinely loves both the Lord and his own children, even if such doctrines are promoted by some of the greatest of men. Without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 verse 6, and we know that whatsoever we pray for, believing we shall receive it, it will be ours, Matthew 21 verse 22. The reality is that we cannot believe anything of God that cannot be grounded in His Word and promises. Thus a parent believing this evil doctrine cannot pray for his child in faith. His spiritual strength to lay hold on the Lord, the confidence to pray earnestly, with full assurance, for the salvation of his children, is sapped. Point two, what a masterstroke of Satan to give him an awesome advantage in the battle to gain their little souls for himself. Endless controversy has surrounded the understanding of certain scriptures relating to election with wise men holding many different positions, Sir Robert Anderson gives a very clear explanation of this scriptural term in the book. Yet there are certain matters which may not be debated and which must form the basis of any acceptance of doctrines such as these. Hear the crystal clear word in our primary section, even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Matt 18:14. Sir Robert Anderson points out that the Greek makes this emphatic, that the will of the Father is the complete opposite of this. This, coupled with other completely clear sections, 1 Timothy 2 verse 3, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 as examples, would force us to choose between some commonly accepted traditional doctrines and the clear spoken word of God. With the souls of our children in the balance, we must hasten to clear our thinking, cease to be wise and prudent and return to our own status as babes so that we may have God's incomprehensible truths revealed to us, Matthew 11 verse 25. Can those who cannot remember be saved? In the gospel halls where we gather, and where Sir Robert Anderson also preached and gathered, there is a strong emphasis on the preaching of the gospel and it is refreshing to hear it preached each Lord's Day as well as at many other times. 
Because of our interest in genuineness we have insisted on a certain pattern of salvation that is applied indiscriminately to children as well as to adults. Because of certain error that allows for covenant or household salvation, i.e. you are saved because your parents are saved, or for a gradual, undefined salvation, we have demanded a known time when, place where, and manner how for each one professing Christ is Savior. The zeal is right, the errors are real, but the universal application is wrong. That the new birth happens at least as instantaneously and deliberately, and miraculously, as natural birth cannot be argued. But I cannot find any scripture that demands any level of personal knowledge of the moment or details of salvation as the proof of it. If one were to further stretch the birth analogy, the only recollection I have of my own birth is through the accounts of others. The proof of it, however, is in my present life. It is interesting that scripture places the onus of remembering on the Lord, not on the believer. Matthew 7 verse 23 says, I never knew you, not, you never knew me. Note the careful language of Galatians 4 verse 9, but now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Salvation is defined, ultimately, by what God thinks and sees and does, by a name that he writes in a book, not by what is going on at our end at any given time. Matthew 18 verse 3 states clearly that it is adults, not children, that need a conversion experience, as Sir Robert Anderson points out. Steps of repentance from idols and dead works are reserved for those who have them to turn from. The little children, on the other hand, need largely but to be brought to the Savior, preferably by their parents, as Scripture illustrates. There are those who received Christ at such a young age that as adults they have no recollection of it. Sir Robert Anderson makes this point strongly, and if there is a point to cause controversy it is this, read his footnote at the end of chapter 3. This should, however, not be regarded as abnormal if of such as the kingdom of heaven refers to young children, and he notes that the Greek in several of the gospel accounts clearly points to very, very young children. I know of some saved at two and three years of age that have minimal recollection of it and yet have over many years as adults borne out the genuineness of salvation. I dare say that it would be difficult to separate their personal memory from that built upon the account of others. I personally know of some who have no personal recollection at all who have borne out the fruit of reality in their lives. The ones I know well speak of a distinct commitment to the Lordship of Christ as adults, but it is certain they were saved previously. Others have a story of the calling of the Savior and a seeking after Him, but cannot pinpoint the exact event beyond a period of time three. Some of these have been racked with doubts once coming amongst us, and who could blame them? To one such, near and dear to me, our late and highly esteemed servant of the Lord Fisher Hunter said, Salvation is a matter of who you are trusting. Now! Or, as Sir Robert Anderson states it at the end of chapter 3, looking back for tokens or proofs that we have been born of God, or converted, may take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ and plunge us into darkness. Moreover the remembrance of a change experienced at some past epoch of life is no safe anchorage for faith. Indeed it may prove as perilous and false as would dependence on the fact of having been subjected to a religious ordinance or right in infancy. The Christian is one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a present faith in Christ, and not in Christ as Savior only, but as Savior and Lord. Often a child that has early professed Christ later discovers that a further response of faith is required as adulthood is entered, he may feel that he was never saved. This is actually common since the adult mind and thinking is quite different from that of a child. 
In this case nothing has been lost. A child that sincerely believes that he is saved, that fears the Lord and seeks to please him will be preserved from much evil and hardening of the heart. Sometimes a second touch is necessary and unavoidable, even as with the blind man who required two touches from the omnipotent Savior to be healed, Mark 8 verses 22-24. In such instances I am often hard-pressed to discern between salvation and the filling of the Spirit, we might well ask ourselves at what point the blind man could actually see, albeit dimly. We leave that with the Lord. But, again, we must accept them and their profession where they are and move vigorously forward. Entail, God's desire as the basis of believing prayer in action. The word entail is a legal term meaning, a predetermined order of succession, as to an estate or to an office, or something transmitted as if by unalterable inheritance. Sir Robert Anderson makes his case that it is, emphatically, God's will to save every child of believing parents. This does not exclude the others, by any means, but it is with our own house that we are immediately concerned. How can we make disciples of all nations if we cannot make disciples of our own children? Interestingly, the term discipline means, to make a disciple of point four interesting, too, that the Lord always looks to the household of one professing Christ with the immediate intention of saving each there as well. Point five. So it is here, with our little ones, that our soul winning must begin, and we may do it with the full assurance of God's intentions and blessing. May the Lord bless each parent with much grace and wisdom to accomplish this one task, if nothing else, in our lifetime. If we can win our own for him, our lives will have been successful, if we can't, not much else really matters. Conclusion of the Preface With this lengthy monologue I commend the book to the reader. May the Lord guide and bless each one as these words of Sir Robert Anderson are considered. I would enjoy hearing from those who have benefited from this book, as well as who wish to sharpen my thinking. I have taken the liberty of electronically linking page references in the book. Those given in the GTP version are misaligned to the printed pages, with the appendix especially far off, so I did my best to correctly link them up. With that difference and the exception of this preface to the electronic version the entire document is as it was written by Bro, Anderson and given in the published version mentioned. With much love and the Savior. Alfred Corjuan, June 4, 2003. Acorjuan at gmail.com, updated July 18, 2011. www.corjuan.com, updated July 18, 2011. P.S. The website has pictures of our family, including our eight children. As I write this our oldest is 16, the youngest almost one. So, although the above is presented with some boldness, we are still in the trenches with everyone else, proceeding with great need and reliance on the Lord. May He bless and have mercy on His people, and save and preserve each and every one of our little children. July 18-11, we now have 11 children, and the rest holds true. Prefatory Note the lawyer will understand the title of this book, and the subtitle will indicate its meaning to the layman. The entail of the covenant is a phrase which enshrines a great truth, and the author of it, whoever he be, deserves our gratitude. The question may suggest itself to some why the important matter of the appendix was not incorporated in the text. It is due to the fact that the publication of the book has been delayed on account of the war, and in the interval during which these pages were in type it was pressed upon me that a somewhat fuller treatment of their secondary subject was desirable. And having to choose between recasting several chapters or relegating the new matter to an appendix, 
I adopted the latter alternative. Notes. One this is an unscriptural term, or at least unscripturally applied. The only reference I can find that uses profession with the idea of false is Titus 1 verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. This is hypocrisy, deliberate deception, hardly even possible in our little ones unless we are driving them into it. False professions of lies, evil doctrine, 1 Timothy 6 verse 21, are to be abandoned when one comes into fuller knowledge of the truth. But to give up a profession otherwise, and encourage our little ones to do so, is a dangerous thing, Hebrews 6 verses 1-2. Professions of truth and faith are meant to be held fast, Hebrews 10 verse 23, strengthened, and clarified. Two indeed, I have, astonishingly, had Calvinists argue with me that it is unscriptural to pray for the salvation of souls. They are commended for being courageous enough to follow the doctrines they hold to their logical end, but condemned for accepting such obvious wickedness, which is so completely opposed to the spirit and consistent testimony of the one who was called love, let alone clear scriptures. 3. I am one of these. I know when I received the full assurance of salvation, but I am certain I was saved in the preceding months of intense soul trouble and glimpses of light and assurance alternated with periods of black doubts. For there is only one thing scripture specifically points out as guaranteed to deliver our children from a Christless eternity in hell, thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Proverbs 23 verse 14, now, this verse, alone, would leave us terribly unbalanced since nurturing, patience, and gentleness are the keys to every child's heart and must be in place before any corporal punishment can have any positive effect. Spanking without genuine love will do more damage than good. However, this does express the urgency of the matter. In the end we will do whatever we must to see our children saved, and the rod has a clear role in the atmosphere of discipline that helps bring it about, and I am, for the record, not the example to follow in the correct application of it, but am continuing to learn along with everyone else. 5 Acts 16 verse 31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy, set apart for God. Malachi 2 verse 16 For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hadeth putting away, divorce, why does God hate divorce so much? Verses 15 That he might seek a godly seed. With this scripture, let alone experience, we come to the conclusion that divorce greatly undermines this entail making it much less likely that the child will come to Christ.